So there's been other work that's sort of branched off from the ACEs study. And one particular study found that those with trauma in their childhood are less like, likely to, um, to make money. So they're less likely to have um, jobs or careers where they make decent money. And they also exhibit impairments in money management. Um, and these impairments are not necessarily accounted for by a lack of education. So there's something else going on that prevents um, folks with past trauma from learning to manage their money or from at least accepting the information. Um, many people with past trauma have trouble holding a job and um, very often use spending as a maladaptive coping mechanism. Um, so they either spend money on maladaptive coping mechanisms, so they go and spend money on drugs or alcohol or gambling or, you know, prostitutes, whatever, or they do retail therapy, right? They, they use money as a, a coping mechanism that's maladaptive. Um, so uh, following up on that and, and going, because again, these are trauma and adversity experiences that have nothing to do with it. podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jerry Sunshine Novak. And today, uh, I'm going to be talking for a little bit about uh, a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, uh, incredibly important in, in the realm of overcoming adversity and pursuing post-traumatic growth uh, and thriving. And in my opinion, grossly overlooked and, and um, not nearly discussed enough. And that's the topic of financial well-being. So, so what is financial well-being? How does that play in the way we manage money, the way we deal with our finances, the way we save money, the way we invest money? What does that have to do with trauma and adversity? And so uh, those two things, uh, finances and trauma can be related probably in many ways. I'm guessing there's a number of ways, but there are two primary ways that um, I'd like to address for the, for the purpose of this episode of the podcast. <clears throat> I have no problem getting into other relationships between adversity or trauma and money later on down the line. If you are watching this on YouTube or listening, please drop a comment if you feel like uh, there's an area you'd like me to explore more, or if you think that maybe there's something I missed or something that could be discussed more, let, let's have a conversation about this. The two areas, though, um, that uh, I'm going to get into today, to today, the first is actually dealing with financial trauma. And um, trauma is a, a hard word um, because it gets thrown around a lot unfortunately, um, many things get described as traumatic. And 
<clears throat> there's sort of a fine line we walk in the helping professions as a psychologist, as a, as a coach, like I do as a coach, as, um, I mean, I have a PhD in psychology, but I, I do coaching now, um, maybe as, as a medical doctor, even, or a social worker. And the line we want to toe, the line we want to sort of balance on is um, when people describe something as traumatic or as being a trauma, we certainly don't want to um, minimize or, or fail to appreciate that whatever the person's experienced was upsetting to them, uh, and maybe even greatly upsetting to them. Uh, and so uh, the word, you know, I don't want to pick nit over people's word usage or semantics, but from a clinical perspective, when we talk about trauma, we're talking specifically about a reaction in your central nervous system. So we're talking about sympathetic nervous arousal, a fight, flight, or freeze kind of a response. And there are more options than fight, flight, or freeze, but they're outside the realm of this episode of the podcast. But when we talk about trauma, we're talking about something that creates an involuntary nervous system survival type reaction. When we talk about a trauma disorder, right, like a PTSD kind of thing, what we're talking about is that survival sympathetic nervous system reaction in response to stimuli or, or events that are not threatening. So, um, you know, if you've been through something terrible, if you were, God forbid, if you were assaulted or had some sort of experience like that, <clears throat> and you happen to be somewhere where you see somebody who looks like the person who assaulted you and ha you have a full-on survival kind of response, that's trauma-related. If you're, uh, you know, if you have a, a long-term relationship and it ends in an ugly breakup and it feels devastating and uh, you feel betrayed, you feel hurt, uh, maybe you have nights where you have trouble sleeping, you, you're very upset, you know, um, I, my intent is not to minimize that or, or, or if you had, you know, other circumstances, if you, you know, lost a job, terrible things happen to people all the time. And I'm, it's not my intent to minimize that. But that's why I very often will use the word adversity instead of trauma when I'm um, talking about the content on my Facebook groups and in this podcast is uh, there's all sorts of adversity that can have all sorts of profound impact on us as people. And there's a section of that that is sort of bona fide trauma um, the rest of it, we might need to call it something else, but it doesn't mean it didn't have impact. I hope that's clear. And so I, I give you that sort of preamble because the first issue I wanted to talk about is one that is called financial trauma. And um, financial trauma is people who legitimately have um, PTSD-like symptoms um, in response to having had financial hardship. Um, so in response to having had to file a bankruptcy or having um, sort of been in financial ruin or having uh, maybe still being in financial ruin. And so there's this um, phenomenon that, that researchers um, refer to, the researcher I know of uh, is Dr. Galen uh, Buckwalter who talks about financial trauma. There, there may be others, 
Um, this is the person I'm familiar with. Um, but Dr. Buckwalter has recognized PTSD symptoms that were caused by financial stressors. And technically, I don't know if we can call them PTSD because in, in the diagnostic manual, um, it sort of specifies what sorts of events would create PTSD and financial stressors are not in there, yet the symptoms are very similar. Um, Dr. Buckwalter has also uh, um, like identified four signs that you might be struggling with financial trauma. One is financial avoidance. So not wanting to engage in managing finances or talking about finances or dealing with things financial. Um, overspending, which is also a form of avoidance, sometimes overspending, um, much like other um, sensation-seeking types of behaviors like gambling, like um, risk-taking, like sometimes substance use. It can give us a dopamine rush. It can make us feel good. But if we're avoiding the management piece of it, you can see how that would lead to financial disaster. Um, financial avoidance could also, it could look like overspending or it could look like underspending. Sometimes people are so motivated to avoid dealing with their finances that they don't even purchase the things that they need. Um, I, in my mind, this is akin to people maybe who are um, severely depressed and have trouble accomplishing the activities of daily living, what we call the ADLs, you know, they don't shower, they don't brush their teeth, they don't, they're just so overwhelmed by their depression that they can't muster the energy to take care of themselves in what we might consider very basic sorts of ways. So people with financial underspending as a, as a trauma symptom will do this. They will avoid spending money to the point that they will actually impair their lifestyle uh, create maybe potential harm to them and their families by not food shopping, by not buying toiletries, um, things of that nature, by not paying their, their bills on time, their utility bills and such, or their mortgage or their rent. <clears throat> and then the fourth, so it's financial avoidance is one, overspending is two, underspending is three. And the fourth is lack of boundaries around money. Um, and that would, you know, if we were talking about any sort of, if we're talking about interpersonal relationships, or if we were talking about your professional relationships, um, even sexual relationships, we would generally think of boundaries as a very healthy thing. Um, you know, there are things that you may feel like you need in any of those relationships in order to be fulfilled. And there are things that probably you um, feel like are deal breakers for you and that you will not be engaged with in a romantic relationship or a business relationship or even a sexual relationship and those are deal breakers and and you should have sort of an awareness of those and be able to describe those and and talk about them and then there's probably areas gray areas in the middle where there are things maybe um, you're willing to discuss or negotiate but the ability to recognize our boundaries establish them and maintain them is generally thought of as a as a pretty healthy um, ability, pretty healthy skill set. Uh, and it doesn't have to be aggressive. You don't have to do it aggressively, but it should probably be assertive. You know, uh, if somebody, you know, if you're 
I don't know, in a business agreement, if you're an accountant and you work for a company and they say, hey, we got to cook the books a little because this quarter wasn't so great. Um, you know, you don't have to scream and yell and set the place on fire. It doesn't have to be aggressive. Um, but you could assertively say, that's just not something I'm going to do, you know. Um, and so there should be boundaries around your relationship with money as well. Um, it's okay to be generous. I think it's terrific to be generous in my opinion, right? You don't have to share that opinion with me, but um, I believe that giving, um, not just to official nonprofits or charities, but being generous to family and to friends and um, giving generous gifts. And um, I'm a firm believer in being as, gener as generous as humanly possible given my financial situation at the time. So sometimes I find myself um, in a situation of more abundance and I can give more freely. And sometimes I find myself in situations where things are a little tighter and I still try to be as generous as I can, but there's a boundary. And so these are the four uh, signs that you might look for with financial trauma. And, um, and there's actually some emerging treatment for people. Uh, what I do in this coaching field is not treatment. If I work with somebody who's having, for example, financial difficulties, because I also do financial coaching, and I work with somebody who's having some financial difficulties, uh, and those are related to difficulty with identifying their values around money, difficulty identifying their goals, maybe some self-worth sorts of difficulties. I can help people with that sort of thing. If people are failing to manage their money because of legitimate symptoms of what could be a mental health disorder, um, I would refer them to somebody who's in clinical practice. But according to Dr. Buck Walter, um, treatment for financial trauma uh, revolves around um, managing those nervous system reactions. If you remember, I said trauma has to do with your sympathetic nervous system. And so what happens uh, in financial trauma is similar to what happens in other times of types of trauma where people get triggered. Uh, another word that gets thrown around and misused a lot, but a trigger is just a stimulus in the present that brings up a response from the past. So if I was... Um, I don't know, assaulted and robbed on a particular street, you know, 10 years ago. And it just so happens I find myself on that street again today and I have a, a huge reaction, a survival reaction to being on that street. That would be a trauma reaction and the street would be the trigger because it's a stimulus in the present. But my response is actually not based on what's going on in the present. My response is based on what happened 10 years ago, if that makes sense. So, so financial trauma is trauma that was created by financial stressors. And um, somebody suffering from that sort of trauma should get legitimate treatment, absolutely. Um, what I do in my practice is I work with folks who are sort of through the treatment stage um, or maybe didn't need treatment, right? People who had a hard time, had adversity, experienced a trauma, experienced whatever, divorce, bankruptcy, whatever difficulty they had, and they're, they're trying to rebuild. Um, but if they're still symptomatic and that's in the way, then I, I would refer for treatment first. Um, the second type of issue that I wanted to get into de to today in which money is related to adversity or to trauma 
uh, is less about trauma from financial, like specifically financial stressors, but more about trauma or adversity from any source and how that might influence the way we manage our financial life uh, as adults, because sometimes that adversity or that trauma occurs in childhood. So uh, I have a couple of sources. I, I was looking through, um, there's a, a website called moneysavedmoneyearned.com that um, had some information about the relationship between finances and trauma. Uh, and according to moneysavedmoneyearned.com, um, about 70% of adults in the general population have experienced a trauma in their life. And about 90% of those engaged in some sort of behavioral health care and, and who are in therapy or maybe in inpatient units receiving psychiatric care, um, about 90% have have experienced the trauma, which but for those who know me, you've probably heard me say that I'm a, I'm a big believer um, that most mental health difficulties, not just PTSD, but depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, that, that most of these um, conditions that mental health professionals work with have a lot more to do with what we've been through than what's wrong with us. I mean, yes, you can find some genetic predisposition for certain um, disorders or diagnoses, but for those genetics to be expressed, um, we have to have gone through something. It's, in my opinion, my suspicion, and I'm not really an expert on genetics, so I'm not claiming to know things I don't, but um, my suspicion is that most people's mental health difficulties are you know, the, the pins may have been set up, if you will, by their genetics, but the pins got knocked down by what they've been through. So 90% of those in behavioral health have experienced a trauma. Outside of that, it's still a pretty high number, 70% uh, of the general public. Um, according to this same site, Money Saved, Money Earned, virtually all, so almost 100% of children who witness parental homicide or sexual assault develop trauma symptoms, PTSD, later in life. 90% of children who experience sexual abuse develop PTSD. 77% uh, of children who experience a school shooting develop full-blown PTSD. And 35% of children exposed to community violence, so just in their neighborhood, in their town, uh, uh, develop PTSD. So what we're talking about is a pattern of symptoms and difficulties that's far more pervasive and far more serious than just, I saw something upsetting and was bothered by it for a few days or had a nightmare or two. Like this is about people who are not bouncing back, who are struggling. So it's pretty prevalent. Um, and if you'll notice that there's probably, so probably things like community violence have a higher um, prevalence rate in lower socioeconomic communities. So there might be a link to financial difficulties there. Um, but the rest of these are not financial stressors, uh, you know, sexual abuse and, and parental um, violence and um, school shootings are no, notoriously occur in middle class or, or better neighborhoods of schools. So um, 
Then they go on to talk about the ACEs study, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Those who know me and hear me talk about this constantly. Uh, the ACEs study was the largest um, public health study ever conducted by um, Kaiser Permanente and the um, CDC, uh, still featured on the CDC website. 17,000 individuals uh, participated in the study. And what the study demonstrated was that having ad adverse experiences in childhood could predict uh, difficulties, health-related difficulties later in life. Some of these are probably not that mind-blowing. They're probably not that hard to imagine. So for example, um, and it doesn't matter which adverse childhoods experience they identified, I think 13 of them, but you know, they're basically anything from having been physically abused, sexually abused, verbally abused, witnessing abuse in your house, um, having a parent absent either due to imprisonment or death or divorce. Uh, there's, there's an assortment of um, drug use in the house or, or substance misuse in the house. There's an assortment of these adverse childhood experiences and children who experience, have experiences like this. Um, you know, later in life, there's a higher um, likelihood of alcohol use, of smoking cigarettes, of other substance use, of obesity, um, of having their own mental health problems in adulthood, depression, anxiety, things of that sort. But there are some that are um, less obvious, some, some predict, predict, predictive correlations that are less obvious. So for example, somebody who has an ACEs score of four or higher, so that means they've had four or more of these adverse childhood experiences in their life, well, they're two times more likely to smoke than somebody who hasn't had any. They're seven times more likely to abuse alcohol than somebody who hasn't had adverse childhood experiences. Um, the likelihood of them developing emphysema or bronchitis is up 400% over people without um, adverse childhood experiences. And that 400% is not accounted for by the likelihood of increased smoking. Um, that the numbers are disproportionate. So there's other things going on. And um, the rate of suicide in people who have an ACEs score of four or higher is 1,200%, uh, 1,200% greater than the rate of suicide in those who don't have adverse childhood circumstances. Um, there are others, asthma, allergies, uh, autoimmune disorders, all of these things are higher uh, in adulthood for people who had adverse childhood experiences. Um, and so the ACEs study um, sort of um, was the springboard by which many other investigations and studies were done. In fact, there was an economist who won the Nobel Prize, and I don't remember his name right now. I'm sorry, I'll have to look it up. But there was an economist who won the Nobel Prize because based on the ACEs study, he was able to demonstrate that every dollar a society spends in early intervention for children with these experiences, it will save $7 um, over caring for them when they're adults. So there's been other work that's sort of branched off from the ACEs study. And one particular study found that those with trauma in their childhood are less like, likely to, um, to make money so they're less likely to have 
um, jobs or careers where they make decent money. And they also exhibit impairments in money management. Um, and these impairments are not necessarily accounted for by a lack of education. So there's something else going on that prevents um, folks with past trauma from learning to manage their money or from at least accepting the information. Um, many people with past trauma have trouble holding a job and um, very often use spending as a maladaptive coping mechanism. Um, so they either spend money on maladaptive coping mechanisms, so they go and spend money on drugs or alcohol or gambling or, you know, prostitutes, whatever, or they do retail therapy, right? They, they use money as a, a coping mechanism that's maladaptive. Um, so uh, following up on that and, and going, because again, these are trauma and adversity experiences that had nothing to do with money. Um, similarly, uh, Ross and Coams in 2018 published an article in the Journal of Financial Therapy um, where they looked at the relationship of past trauma, not financial trauma, just generalized trauma to financial well-being in adulthood. And um, they found a, a strong relationship between people who had, who had past trauma seemed to exhibit shame around money and financial issues, very similar to the way that they would, um, people would um, demonstrate shame around sexual behaviors. So um, there's a, a, a well-established body of literature that supports the idea that people with past trauma, um, especially sexual abuse, but it doesn't have to be, it can be other types of trauma, um, develop shame around sexual behaviors. And there's four categories that they identify of sexual shame. So there's um, pervasive discomfort discussing sex, either in a casual conversation or even in an intimate conversation with a partner about their sex life. Uh, number two is a significant lack of um, confidence or um, inferiority as it, as it pertains to sex, um, a lack of in a, confidence in their abilities, feeling inferior in the sexual world, that's number two. Number three would be a, like a hyper-focus on the evils of sex and sexuality and thinking that sex-related sins, if you will, are the worst sins of them all, right? Of, of all the sins of a human can, um, all the sins a, a human can participate in, sex is the worst. And then four is um, that a belief that they don't have the right to voice their likes and their dislikes as it pertains to sex. They just sort of have to be willing participants in whatever their partners may want. And so uh, Ross and Coams in this article for the Journal of Financial Therapy have, um, oh, by the way, I'm sorry, just to give you the reference, that those four categories of sexual shame um, are Mercurio, M-E-R-C-U-R-I-O, uh, 2017 is the citation if anybody wants to look that up. But Ross and Coams in, in 2018 um, found similarities. They found that, that people with past trauma and again, not financial trauma, have pervasive discomfort talking about money. 
and um, they have a significant lack of confidence in themselves and see themselves as inferior in their ability to manage money or to take care of their financial well-being. They view money as the root of all evil, and they think the sins related to building wealth or using money or related to anything financial in nature are the worst sins, um, and that they do not have a right to voice their opinions, likes, or dislikes as it pertains to their financial life and their financial well-being. So this was of particular interest to me because, again, if you've listened to me talk and on this podcast or on other podcasts where I was a guest or have read things I've put up on the Facebook pages, you'll know that um, I'm a firm believer, again, that most of what ails people psychologically and socially has to do with what they've been through and not so much what's wrong with their DNA. So it has to be, it has more to do with trauma and adversity in their lives. And in my opinion, probably the biggest enemy or the biggest opponent we face trying to get our lives back after adversity or trauma, especially childhood adversity and maltreatment, is shame. Um, shame, as most people know, is different from guilt. Guilt, if you do something wrong, you feel badly about that behavior. It's not necessarily a reflection of your character, right? The behavior might be out of character for you, something unusual for you, and you'd feel bad about it, and maybe be motivated to correct it or make it right. Shame is more of a belief about myself and my value and my worth as a human being. And the idea that I am unworthy of love and belonging for who I am. Um, this is where a lot of folks who have had um, past adversity will um, tend to be caregivers. They tend to like to take care of people. They like to always be waiting on people, right? They never sit down and rest. They're always making sure everybody has, a, has something to drink, has something to eat, is comfortable, is, you know, that the house is clean, that they're uh, doing the laundry, that they're, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to earn a sense of worthiness, like they, like they deserve to be loved because they've done all these things. And it's a fallacious kind of system because Anybody who really loves somebody, if you have children or a partner or a sibling, and if you really love them, you know that that love is unconditional, right? So even if your sibling or your partner is a slob and never does the dishes, it might annoy you, but you love them anyway. It doesn't devalue them as a human being. It's just an irritating trait. And so people who carry around shame feel like those, if, that if anybody else really saw them, like saw them authentically, they would deem them without value, would deem them unworthy of love and belonging. And so uh, there are certain topics, I think, culturally, at least in our culture, that lend themselves easily to a sense of shame. And I think that money is one of those, sex is one of those, probably religion and politics um, would fall into those categories, because we were taught from early on that you don't talk about um, we were never taught why you don't talk about them. I, I suppose from certain religious um, perspectives, talking about sex could be sinful, could be wrong. And if that's your faith, then I, I, that's fine. That's, you know, you can follow what you believe. But culturally, society, you know, socially, um, 
The only motivator I can think of of why it would be taboo for us to talk about money with one another is so that people who are who have power and wealth could, you know, pay us not enough or pay us differently for doing the same job or have all sorts of kind of inequities and not that everybody should have the same amount of of money and I don't necessarily know that wealth needs to be evenly distributed but if we can't talk about it it allows us to be mistreated and not just by employers it allows us to be mistreated by other people I mean how many um, children who are the victims of abuse are groomed by their abusers using gifts of money or buying expensive gifts or threatening to cut off funds if they say anything. And so there's um, this heavy burden around financial matters. Um, same thing with sexual matters. And so it doesn't surprise me that these things have come up as related to trauma, because a lot of times people who have past trauma don't feel their own personal worth. They don't see themselves as having a sense of value or a sense of worth. And if you don't have a sense of value and a sense of worth, then why would you invest for your future? What would motivate you to do that, right? Even though you, you may know that it's a good idea, how could that good idea get put into action if you're not a person of value, right? Um, and if spending that money today on anything, on alcohol, on new shoes, on heroin, on Doritos, whatever, will make you feel better today and you're not really gonna be a person of worth later anyway, it makes it very hard um, for people to even comprehend the possibility of setting themselves up financially. You know, um, in order for anything to be a goal, we have to imagine it as a possibility, right? Um, it, it's hard to set a goal. I mean, very few people, well, I, even then, I would say the people who have achieved astronomical things, people who have been in the space program and gone to the moon and whatever, to the depths of the sea, um, no matter how wild a goal that was, I would argue that in order for it to be a goal, they had to be able to imagine it as a possibility. And so in order for people to start to manage their finances, to pull themselves out of debt, to have an emergency fund saved up, to have some money invested in something, an index fund, an IRA, something that um, earns compounding interest and will pay them back later um, in life, um, they have to see themselves as worthy of that. They have to feel like they have the value to deserve those things. So at the risk of going too long on this podcast um, without a guest to bounce back off of, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at that. But I, I do want to put out there that um, Trauma legitimately does influence people's physical well-being, their emotional well-being, their social and interpersonal well-being, and their financial well-being. And if you are somebody who has experienced adversity or trauma and you are experiencing symptoms and think that you might have a trauma-related illness like a PTSD or something of that sort, please get help 
from a, from a therapist, from a psychologist, a counselor, social worker. Um, if you need help finding a therapist, feel free to contact me uh, through the Facebook groups or through my YouTube page. I will be happy to try to help you find a referral to somewhere you need. If you are not symptomatic, but you have been through some difficult times and you are starting to put the pieces of your life back together and you feel like you could use some guidance and some coaching in that regard, find a coach. I'm, I'm a coach um, and I do coaching in all sorts of domains. I have a PhD in psychology. I'm a certified personal fitness trainer through the National Academy of Sports Medicine. And I'm a financial coach, um, still working on my certification, but that's to come, but I work as a financial coach um, and we can help you um, put these um, bricks back in place. And if I'm not the coach for you, that's fine. I'm happy to help you find someone who is. Um, but in the meantime, um, please uh, take care of yourselves. I will say for sure that I value you and I value your time. Thank you so much. If you're watching this podcast episode or if you're listening to it, thank you for investing your time. Um, the podcast is available. The video version is available on YouTube at Growth and Thriving LLC. The audio versions are available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and it's the Growth and Thriving Podcast. Uh, my blog, if you're interested in my blog, which is a little more humorous, but has some of the same content. It's just using my life and um, a little bit of humor and a lot of foul language to figure out lessons learned and such. Um, the blog is called What the Fuck Am I Doing? And the website is whatthefkamidoing.com. Um, and so thank you for investing your time. Thank you for reading the blog, for listening to the podcast. Please, if you like the content I share, please like it, share it with your social networks, get it out there. Um, feel free to comment. I try to respond to every comment I get and subscribe. Thank you so much. And until next time, this is Dr. Jerry Sunshine Novak saying, keep growing until you're thriving. Take care, everyone.